Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at all forms of transport, from the humble bike through to the rocket-powered spaceship. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at news stories, including Paris to ban older cars in the city centre. We talk to Dr Bridie Scott Parker, who heads the Adolescent Risk Research Unit at Queensland University of Technology. She has done some great new research about how adults and young people perceive the driving conditions differently. We road test the Mitsubishi Pajero Sport. And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith and Brian Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including China unveils a straddling bus design to beat traffic jams. Will it work? Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the interview, road test and quirky news by going to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program from iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to start the program, let's have the news. Air pollution is a major problem in many cities. In recent years, Motor vehicles have significantly reduced their pollution levels, as well as improved their fuel consumption. So now, Paris is restricting older cars in their city centre in order to remove the more polluting vehicles. From the 1st of July, cars registered before 1997 will not be allowed to enter the city centre during weekdays. The ban also applies to motorcycles registered before the 1st of June 1999. The fine for breaking the law will be €35, which is about $54, and that will rise over time. The ban will affect roughly 10% of vehicles registered in Paris. The effects of climate change are not just to be felt on the coastline with rising sea levels. The Tomorrow's Railway and Climate Change Adaption Project, a consortium led by consultants Arab, has found that climate change is forecast to have a significant and damaging impact on the railway network through a combination of higher average temperatures, rising sea levels, more frequent floods and heat waves, wetter winters and drier summers. The report predicts that without mitigation, climate change will present a significant increased risk to the railway network, to passengers and railway workers. A potential major disruption to the rail network caused by adverse weather conditions, as happened in Dawlish in February 2014, could have a range of impacts on other transport modes and the wider economy, the report found. The availability and ease of connectivity are increasing and becoming deal-breaking issues with new vehicle purchases. A study used by Nissan in the UK to understand the importance of developing state-of-the-art infotainment systems in crossover SUVs reveals that 28% of new car buyers prioritise car connectivity over other features such as fuel efficiency. 13% would not buy a car that's not connected to the internet, 20% would switch to another car brand for better connectivity, and that rises to 41% for drivers who spend more than 20 hours a week in their car. Overdrive was recently testing a new car when it unexpectedly went into drive-home mode. This is where the car significantly reduces its performance to preserve the engine. It was extremely unsettling to try and pull out into a mainstream of traffic when the car would hardly accelerate at all. 
Apparently, there was nothing wrong with the car, and this is not an isolated case where the software has gone wrong in a vehicle. The number of software-related issues has been on the rise. According to finance advisors Stout Riasus Ross in their Automotive Warranty and Recall Report 2016, software-related recalls have gone from less than 5% of recalls in 2011 to 15% by the end of 2015. The answer may be similar to the regular updates that you get for programs on your computer sent via the internet. In this way, your car can be updated immediately and you will not have to bring it in for a recall. Adelaide held its first Formula One Grand Prix in the modern era in 1985, but the race moved to Melbourne in 1996. Now Adelaide wants to get back into open-wheel formula racing. Adelaide's Lord Mayor, Martin Hayes, says the International Formula E Championship would be a good fit for South Australia. The first FIA Formula E Championship is for all electric racing cars and was launched in 2014 with a series in 10 cities including Beijing, Buenos Aires, Moscow and London. Adelaide could be an appealing location for Formula E because of its proximity to Asia and the layout of the city. The harsh reality that the road toll can claim anyone is perhaps never better exemplified than with the sad death of Maribel Lena. She had worked for 30 years at the Florida Department of Transportation and was the spokesperson for state transport projects in Miami. She was on her way to a news briefing to detail new, sturdier poles for the I-95 express lanes to reduce accidents. She was hit from behind, sending her car careering off the road into the grassy shoulder. The vehicle spun, hit the embankment and flipped on its roof. A crash investigation is ongoing and charges have not yet been filed. Lena had a 21-year-old daughter, Bianca. Recently, Overdrive did some calculations showing that modern cars are much bigger than their namesakes from the 50s and 60s. Now a pair of Dutch mini-enthusiasts have taken a much more practical approach to demonstrating this phenomenon. They managed to stuff a full-scale cardboard replica of a 1959 Morris Mini Minor into a 2010 Mini Countryman. That's not too surprising, as the Countryman is 34% longer 43% wider and 16% taller than the 1959 Morris Mini. The new Countryman goes from 0 to 100 km per hour in just 11.9 seconds and reaches a top speed of 175 km per hour compared to 27.1 seconds and just 116 km per hour for the original Mini. And that has been the news. Your children well, their father's hell did slowly go by and feed them on your dreams. The one they picked, the one you know died. Don't you ever ask them why if they told you you would cry. So just look at them and sigh And know they love you 
In his book, The Outliers, writer Malcolm Gladwell documents the causes of some major airline crashes, including a systemic problem with Korean airlines in the 1990s and crashes in America. The problem in these situations was poor communication. This is more than just one misheard comment or the misunderstanding of the meaning of one word. The whole dynamics of the interaction between pilot, co-pilot, engineer and control tower was a problem. I should say that the Korean airlines turned their poor safety record around. Recently on Overdrive we discussed behavioural change with Liz Ampt and talked about the need to understand where the other person is coming from. This is more than just tailoring the message to a person, it's about finding out what they see and understand about the situation. Now we have previously spoken to Dr Bridie Scott Parker who leads the Adolescent Risk Research Unit at the University of the Sunshine Coast. She has been doing a research project titled Do Parents and Learner Drivers See the Same Road? It goes to the very core of what we need to understand about effective interaction, not just one-way communication, if we are to teach our children well. Bridie joins us on the line now. Bridie, I hope I don't show my age by starting with a reference from Crosby, Stills and Nash. Do you remember the song? I don't remember the song, but I'm quite sure I shall remember it because I too am from last century. 1970 was the song, and the lyrics were actually, I think, a bit one-dimensional. It actually starts with, you who are on the road must have a code that you live by. Seems a pretty good point. But it then says to the children, don't you ever ask them why if they told you you might cry, just look at them and sigh. It's a bit one way, that sort of communication, isn't it? Which is what you're aiming against. Well, that's right. We want people to question why because that's actually how we learn. So definitely we need to look at young driver road safety a different way. And I think we need to support parents in this process. Often parents get a bad rap, but if you don't know what you need to do because no one's helped you, I think that's very unfair. And it's our young people who are paying the price. Road safety in the 60s used to be a very stern lecture from an adult. We've certainly moved away from that. We have, which is excellent. Unfortunately, though, we know young drivers still are much more likely to be killed on the road. So I think despite the wonderful advances we've made with programs such as graduated licensing and minimum practice requirements, I think there is so much more we can do. And a big part of that is thinking about it differently. To think about it differently, you actually looked at it a bit differently. What were you measuring? What did you do? We affixed GoPro cameras to the front and the two side windows of a car and drove along some simple routes and some complex routes such as roundabouts and roadwork. We captured different manoeuvres such as merging, travelling beside drivers and driving through a school, a school zone. We have this fantastic simulation environment at the university where you're in a cave environment. It's as if you're driving this car and we've projected those three film clips all running at the same time. You're the driver and I get to ask you to speak aloud while you're driving along that route. What are you looking at? You're the driver to what are you paying attention? And we had the learner do this separately from their parents. So I was able to analyse exactly what they were looking at and I've identified some really key gaps and I don't think parents are aware and young drivers certainly aren't aware. They're not really seeing the same road even though they're looking through the same windscreen. If I scream at my kid, didn't you see that? Perhaps the point is, no, it didn't. You don't understand what I'm looking at. 
parents, of course, have had a longer experience. So how do they see the world differently? The parents actually see the road completely dim differently and I sympathise with parents screaming at their children. I have a learner driver and I often say to parents, please don't scream at your child because it scares them. I have let out blood-curdling shrieks as we shuffled towards intersections whilst I'm screaming brake and she's going, what? What do you mean brake? So yes, I have a vested interest myself in these research findings. What I found is that parents spent all of the drive not only attending to really important things on the journey such as merging, complex roundabouts, road work, they also had this insight into what others were doing, they could anticipate what those others were doing and they looked at those behaviours in relation to themselves which is really important. It meant that they were looking at what's happening on the road in front of them what's happening on the road beside them and being mindful in particular of what's happening on the road behind them. And the young people, a little more narrow, I presume? Much, much more narrow, focused on novelty. So even reflecting on your own drive each day, perhaps you're sharing the road with a truck occasionally, maybe once a day, and maybe you have one circumstance of merging. Much of their focus was on these novel and really scary from a learner's perspective and even sometimes from an experienced driver's perspective, these really scary novel events rather than focusing on things like there's a driver beside me, I can see their indicators on, I'm going to be mindful because perhaps they may jump in the lane in front, they may jump in the lane behind. The parents also had some insight into how they were potentially a hazard to other people. Learners had no insight into how their vehicle might actually affect someone else's road safety. Instead, it tended to be two eyes focused on the car in front, despite having a much larger roadway environment to the front, to the side and behind. Dr Bridie Scott-Parker and I continued the discussion about how we can apply this information to teaching our children to drive and how we might deal with them in general. The full interview can be heard on our website at www.drivenmedia.com.au You're listening to Overdrive. The Mitsubishi Pajero has been in Australia since 1983. It was once the byword for four-wheel driving in general and Mitsubishi in particular. As we have moved from the image of four-wheel driving to SUVs, the Pajero has had to face much more opposition. There's always been Toyota, which still dominates the segment with the Prado and Kluger. The Mitsubishi Pajero is in 10th spot, but this is because they also now have the Pajero Sport, which is in 11th position in its segment. If you combine the two sales figures, Pajero would be in 5th place. But the Pajero Sport is different from the base Pajero. It certainly looks different. And it sells at a very competitive price, starting at $45,000 plus on roads. Makes the Ford Everest seem priced in the pure luxury class. Ian Crawford, the respected motoring journalist, and I have been driving the car. Ian joins me on the line now. Ian, thanks very much for your time. Always a pleasure, David. There is a trend to having sports versions of the traditional four-wheel drive. Certainly in the case of, of the Pajero Sport, it's got the word sport in its name, um, as, as does Range Rover Sport and Land Rover Sport and others. But it doesn't really mean it's a sports car. It, it's a very capable SUV 
it's not a sports SUV like Audi's uh, SQ5 or its soon-to-arrive SQ7, but it is a, a real advance on the old Pajero. We've had Land Rover Sport in the Discovery, and we've and they've also got their Range Rover Sport. It's uh, really going a bit beyond the traditional boxy versions into more stylish models. Now, the new Pajero Sport is uh, based on the Triton, I believe. Uh, yes, David, it is on the Triton platform, and there is a bit of a tendency for companies to do that. The Everest, the Ford thing is on the Ranger platform, the Isuzu MUX is, is on their Utes platform. The Fortuna from Toyota is, is on the Hilux platform. And Colorado 7s on the Colorado Holden Ute platform. So there is quite a trend uh, to use the platforms of their Utes a bit more widely. Do you like to look at this one? It is certainly more stylish than the boxy Fajero that is also in the fleet. I like the look of it side on and front on. Uh, I think the rear treatment's an acquired taste and I haven't quite acquired it yet. I think the taillight treatment on the end's a little bit strange. If you, if you think about some of the other SUVs like the, like Volvos and some Nissan X-Trails, Honda CRV, they tend to put the, the sort of taillights, if you like, up the C-pillar. With the Pajero Sport, it goes down the C-pillar onto the, onto the tailgate level with the bumper bar so it looks rather like a sort of a red cat's tail hanging down to me but certainly from the front it's got the um, Mitsubishi dynamic shield as they call it grilled and frontal treatments very chromey and got quite aggressive styling we first saw that look on the latest Outlander so I, I think it works very well pretty well all round except my jury is still out on the rear treatment. I struggle a bit with the back. It looks like a torch, a long, thin torch, both sides of the stoplights going all the way down. I think the sloping line of it's pretty good on the roof line, almost a little bit like the Range Rover Evoque compared to the boxy shape of the traditional version of the Bajero. What about the engine and the gearbox options? Do you have much there? Yeah, the engine uh, is an all-new 2.4-litre uh, four-cylinder turbo diesel, 133 kilowatts and 430 newton metres. They've mated it with a great new eight-speed sequential sport-shifting automatic, and the two work beautifully together. Mm. It's a very fuel-efficient engine as well, way better than the old Challenger, which is the Mitsubishi that it replaced. And if you would like to hear more about the Mitsubishi Pajero Sport, particularly the features that each of the variations has got, how it handles on the bitumen and off-road as well, go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, a listener rang in the other day and said how much they enjoy the quirky news segment of the program, which is nice to see and is, of course, a great credit to Errol Smith, who joins us on the line. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. And Brian Smith, who is over in New Zealand at the moment. Brian, thanks for taking the time. G'day, David. And so I will begin with a story which uh, talks about the Stradling bus. You may have seen the story a week or two ago. A Beijing company has unveiled a spectacularly futuristic design for a pollution-busting elevated bus. It's capable of gliding over the traffic jams, for which, of course, urban China has become notorious. It works a bit like a catamaran. It keeps the two sides down over the top of two traffic lanes. It's said to carry uh, 1,400 commuters and can be produced for 20% of the price of an underground train. 
Brian, is this a viable public transport alternative? David, I think it's got quite a few challenges to it. Uh, I, you would have seen the model on display, which is basically a scale model driving around on the track. Now, this, this idea has been around for about six years and it hasn't really developed very far. And, and no wonder, it's kind of like a train on the, the wheels, on, a steel wheels on a track. And it has articulations, but I can't see any way that it can get around corners and go up and down hills with the the design and the weight of the thing. I think it's a, an idea that is going to go nowhere. Uh, it was a lovely idea in a nice flat environment where there are no overhead bridges that you might cause you some difficulty. And very disciplined drivers who stay in their lanes. Yeah, I was wondering about that because it looks like anybody going underneath wouldn't be able to get out of the lane that they're in. Certainly not with a bus on top of them. That's right. Not when Once the bus is there, you're stuck underneath it. And if a car was turned across an intersection, you know, in front of other people, then the whole system would have to stop for them, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think there's quite a few questions that have failed to answer. It might also be hard to see people if they're under that thing. If you're trying to turn across the traffic, a vehicle might be just a bit of the way up underneath this particular type of bus structure and you wouldn't be able to see it. The, the thing, though, that I think it raises is the notion of looking at a, what we would now call a road corridor and think of it as a transport corridor how are we going to use the space now in this case i think it's a nice thought but it's not going to become practical but we are going to have to look differently in the future about what we allow in each individual lanes how we manage that how we allow perhaps different things not just bus lanes but other alternatives as well and i was wondering can you drive a normal bus under this thing (laughs) otherwise you've lost lost your bus lane when i heard first heard the term straddling bus i just thought it was a strange yoga pose (laughs) (laughs) or perhaps a more intimate kind of position but uh, obviously not a not a realistic transport solution now i think it uh, makes people get all rather happy but i'm not sure it's going to do much difference errol you have a story when you order a taxi you've got a pretty good idea of what to expect but with uber it's a bit of a gamble as to whether you'll get a clean recent model with a good driver or a teenager driving an old rust bucket well to play on this uncertainty a prankster in dubai took over his friend's account but rather than picking people up in his mate's Toyota Previa, what we call a Tarago, he showed up in a bright yellow and chrome-painted Bugatti Veyron convertible, fitted out with a whole bunch of cameras, of course, to record the experience. Not surprisingly, once the shock had worn off, everyone uh, who had ordered the Uber driver got in for the ride, which often included a brief feel of the 1,000-plus horsepower of the thing. Aside from being yellow, which is a traditional taxi colour, it's probably not what anybody was expecting. You could guarantee that the driver would do all the talking, though, wouldn't he? This is my car, and this is what it's got, and look how it goes. And I, I would think that well, a taxi driver themselves can often do a lot of the talking. I think this would guarantee it. Certainly, <laughs> want your passengers to be well behaved and sober. It's hardly the sort of car you want to hose out, is it? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> This is not new. Autobuzz did it in 2013 in a McLaren. The only thing was, it was a horrible purple colour. I don't know why anyone allowed a McLaren to be painted in such a horrible-looking colour. 
uh, proves that perhaps money does not guarantee with taste. So there it was an exotic car that turned up, but it was an ugly looking one. Yeah, well, even their Spugatti was pretty garish. It's bright yellow and, and half of it's painted in, in bright reflective chrome. But no, no matter how fancy it is, he still can't use the bus line. Uh, no, that's exactly right. I wonder if they have surge pricing. If you could then say, I will want one of these, but I, I don't want a Toyota Prius. I want to have something exotic. Perhaps we could get a special service. Yeah. Where you get delivered in an exotic car. You know, if you're going to an important meeting or if you're going to turn up at the red carpet, you could hire perhaps one of these as, and look as though it's your own. Mm, so it's more of an Uber Uber. <laughs> uh, what happened though if you turned up and picked up the guy and the guy said, ah, oh, very good, obviously it's a fake. Would that not take the wind out of your sails? Oh, yeah, replica. Yeah, that's got an old VW engine in the back, doesn't it? The ideal sort of thing, though, to sort of go to the end-of-year dance. And I tell you what, that might be a lot cheaper. Have you seen the prices of renting a stretched limo to go to an end-of-year dance? It's about $1,000 an hour for some of them. It's an enormous price. Mm. David, you'd have to go uh, to uh, use Uber by uh, with irony. <laughs> I want something like this if I ever had an ex, you know, a partner who left me or whatever. I could drive past their place and sort of wave. I think that might be good. Brian, this is a story that I think is made for you. What have you got? Well, David, often there's a lot of protein wasted on the side of the road. And if you, every time you hit something and kill it on the road, and in Australia we've got lots of roadkill, but we've got people telling us now that we should be eating roadkill. They, uh, they list a whole lot of reasons for... Uh, for doing this, that it uh, it's, makes ecological sense, it's ethical and cheap, and it's mostly safe. Uh, reading through the article, I was thinking, yes, roadkill, good idea, you could harvest it, it's plenty of it uh, laying around in the outback in particular, but then when I started reading the safety aspects, they say, well, you know, a few of the diseases carried by roadkill can cross over to humans, and, uh, you know, you probably won't catch rabies, you might not get parasites or tuberculosis so hey give it a try just stay away from the livers david would you eat roadkill brian you used a number of words there few probably and might not (laughs) in terms of my health they are not reassuring words and brian errol and i complete our discussion of roadkill in the longer interview which is found on our website at drivenmedia.com.au 